We're spending three weeks this month studying the book of Philemon, a one-chapter book that's in the New Testament right before the book of Hebrews. This is our second week studying this small letter. We said last week this is a letter that comes from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to this Christian gentleman named Philemon. Uh, And just very briefly, you remember Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who was a a very bad, he's called useless in the letter, a bad slave who had run away. And in God's very mysterious providence, he, he brought Onesimus into contact with the Apostle Paul and he brought him under his ministry. And through that, Onesimus was converted. And at some point, we don't know all the timing, but at some point, Paul has decided to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And with him, he sends this letter that he writes to Philemon uh, asking that Philemon receive Onesimus. And so we read this last week. I want to read for us today the middle section, uh, verses 8 through 16. That is what is printed in the bulletin, and that is what I'm going to read for us uh, this afternoon. So let me ask, this is God's holy word. May we all stand as we hear it. Philemon, starting in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the book of Philemon, uh, this very short but rich treasure that you've given to your people. We ask that we might understand it. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher, our guide, our instructor, to lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, give us the humility, the ears to hear, to submit ourselves to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start today with a, a brief illustration that I am aware I have used before, but the purpose here is neither to impress nor to be original, but to hopefully illustrate, explain, and to help us uh, understand the scriptures better. And so I'll tell you of a, a pastor who was once charged with caring for his wife's rose garden. He was not a very good uh, gardener, a good yard man, and and he was well along the way to killing the rose bushes that he had been charged to care for. And he decided one day that he needed more roses on these rose bushes in order to impress his wife. And he realized there were two ways he could go about that. He could go down to the local florist and pick up a couple of dozen roses, and he could bring them home and and just staple those roses all over the rose bush. And perhaps if his wife never got too close to those roses, if she just looked at them from a long ways away and squinted a little bit, 
it might work. She wouldn't be able to tell the difference. She would look and she would see a beautiful rose bush. The other way, of course, would be to actually add fertilizer and to actually water the rose bush and to give it the nutrients and the food and the water that it required in order that the bush itself would grow and that the vine would have life inside itself. And if it was a living and healthy vine, then it would produce roses all of its own accord. Again, one one counselor has said that in his opinion, most of the strategies that we employ to grow in Christ amount to nothing more than rose-stapling techniques. He said oftentimes what we do when we seek to grow in Christ is we desire to to see more fruit in our life. So uh, what we do is we simply think of the things, we list the things that we want to see, and we say, well, I will commit to doing these things. I will give more generously. I will read the Bible more regularly. I will pray more sincerely. I'll take my Christian life more seriously. I'll be more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, etc. All of which are good things. But he says, ultimately, we can't work from the outside in. We can't pretend that by doing these activities that it will change our heart. Rather, he says, what we have to do is start with the inside. We have to start with the heart. And if, if your heart has life in it that is given from Christ, and, and if your heart sees the beauty of Christ, if it's connected to the life-giving vine, then you will of nat- of just naturally produce fruit. That's the way trees work. If they're alive, they produce fruit. So change, he says, must come from the inside. Otherwise, the vine will still be dead. And a dead vine can staple all the roses or all the fruit onto it that you want to do, but the vine is still dead. When we look at this section of Philemon today, one of the things I want us to see is is the way that Paul deals with Philemon. Paul is very pastorally sensitive. He's addressing this very difficult situation. Last week we we reviewed that. Uh, And I want us to see what he does. He does not give Philemon just a list of rules to follow. In fact, he really does not make it very easy for Philemon. Instead, what he does is he appeals to him on the basis of the gospel. And so here's my three points today. Number one, rose stapling never works. Number two, duty versus delight. And number three, organic Christian growth. So first of all, rose stapling never works. Just remember uh, the plot line of this story. Remember, Onesimus is, was Philemon's slave. Uh, he was a very bad slave. Right? We kind of asked what it would feel like if we had hired a guy like this, if we were in that situation. You know, if we had hired someone to do work for us. And not only were they, were they slow and were they sloppy, they did not do the job properly. And then as they left, they stole some cash off the counter. That's the situation Philemon is in here. Onesimus was a bad slave. He's called useless. Uh, and then he runs away. And we're given to think by what Paul says later in the chapter uh, that he stole from Philemon on his way out. And yet, here he is. He's come under Paul's ministry and he's been converted. And so this section we read is the heart of the letter that Paul writes to Philemon. Right? We saw last week that Paul, he prays for Philemon and the, the, the heart of his prayer is that the gospel will become effective in Philemon's life. He knows it, he believes it, he is a believer, but it, it needs to become effective. And now we get into the, the real body of what Paul has to say. This is the heart of the letter. 
you can imagine, just by thinking about this, what a very sensitive issue this is. Right? How, how emotions are no, long, are no doubt running very high between these two men. Uh, there's all sorts of pastoral significance here. This is very useful for us in the way we interact with others, the way we think about our own conflicts, our own problems. And what we do in these verses is we have this chance to look over the shoulder, as it were, of, of Paul as he is pastoring Philemon through this delicate and tender situation. Here's one thing about Philemon that, that drives the commentators sort of up the wall on this. Paul actually never comes out and says exactly what he wants Philemon to do. So he says, uh, he's going to say in verse 21 that he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus, but he says, and more also. Right? He wants something more from Philemon, but he actually never says what that is, so we don't know. Does he want Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a slave again and, and reinstate him as one of his workers? Uh, is, is he hinting that he wants Philemon to set Onesimus free? Right now he's a, a brother in Christ. Would that be the appropriate thing for Philemon to do. Uh, it would be easy, I suppose, for him to just allow Onesimus to get a job somewhere else. I have to say, listen, Onesimus, this is a really broken situation. This is really stressful. Don't go back. You know, stay in Colossae. Find a job. Right? Get, a, get some employment. Work here. You know, just kind of start over. Paul doesn't do that either. Paul sends him back. He sends him back to Philemon uh, with this letter, asking Philemon to do something. And so here we are, looking over the shoulder of, of Paul, the pastor, seeing how he goes about this. And one of the things he says, verse 8, the first verse that we read, is that he's not going to command Philemon what to do. Right? He says he would rather make an appeal out of love, but he's not going to command him to do, to do something. He's not just going to be authoritative pastor, apostle Paul, handing down the instructions of what Philemon must do. He says, I'm not going to do that. See, verse 8, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, why would he not command him? We know Paul has authority. We know Paul believes there is such a thing as legitimate authority in the church, that, that he could have drawn on his authority as an apostle. He could have just told Philemon, here is what the right thing is to do. Go and do it. He could have done that. We know that such authority has been granted in the church. Right? Uh, we know that. We know some people are, are more or less perhaps comfortable or uncomfortable with the idea of authority in the church, but uh, Paul believes in authority in the church. He could have commanded. He says, uh, though I am bold enough in Christ, right, he has the boldness, he believes in the authority. Uh, we might think he doesn't command him because maybe Paul says, well, this is just a personal issue. Right? Maybe this falls outside the scope of pastoral authority, and I do not think Paul would have agreed with that. Right? Uh, Paul, again, as the apostle, could say he really does have the authority to speak into issues like this. He has the authority to speak into these personal matters. We might think, well, no, this is just a business matter. Right? The gospel doesn't really speak to this. Uh, in that day, Philemon was a householder. You know, he was tasked with his job of running his household in a, in a strategic and, and useful manner. 
doing what was necessary. And so maybe Paul should just stay out of that and, and, and stick to preaching the gospel. Paul would not have agreed with that either. Right? Paul would have believed that there's, as we might say, not one square inch of this world which does not come under the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. In all of these ways, Paul could have been bold. He could have drawn on his authority. He could have spoken and just simply told Philemon what to do. But he says, I would rather not. I would rather not. Why does he refrain from just giving a command? I think the issue is a theological issue. I think the reason is theological, why Paul doesn't just want to give Philemon a to-do list. Because... Commands, ultimately, have no power to change the heart. Right? Commands have no power to change the heart. And Philemon could have received a command and he could have done it and he could have checked that off and said, okay, I've done everything that was required of me. And yet, where would that have gotten him? There would have been no internal heart change in this particular issue. Right? It would have been nothing but external behavior. He could have been going through the motions with, with no uh, humility, no heart change, no obedience on the inside. And Paul, I believe, as a pastor, is far more convi- uh, concerned about Philemon's heart in this matter than he is purely about the act of doing what might have been the correct thing to do. So what Paul is going to do, he's not just going to give a command. That would be too easy. He's going to go for the heart issue first. And that's why it's important he goes after delight, not just duty. Delight, not just duty. Again, he could have gone for the rose stapling technique. And given just a couple commands to Philemon, he could have done them. It would have been like stapling roses on the bush and said, look, it all looks good now. The situation has been resolved, hasn't it? Everything looks pretty. But that would not have gotten anywhere. That's one way to live the Christian life. right? We come up with this list of behaviors Some things that we must do as a Christian. We come up with an opposite list, things we must not do as a Christian. Uh, And you can follow those lists really, really well and yet not be growing in your love for Jesus. You can follow those lists really to a T and you can check every single box. And yet there's no humility in your heart before God. There's no desire uh, to, to walk in humble obedience to him, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. There's no loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? There's nothing. You can be completely hollow, and yet you can do all of the activities. I read one time an author was just being a little silly, and he, he listed some activities, and he's like, you know, honestly, my dog makes a pretty good Christian. Right? He doesn't drink, he doesn't swear, he doesn't see R-rated movies, he doesn't do any of those things that we're supposed to avoid. And he was just making the point very, just ridiculously that, that being a Christian is far more than just a list of activities. Right? It's meant to be an internal heart change. And so what we need is first to allow our hearts to be changed by the gospel. We need the internal change to produce the love and the humility and the compassion and the zeal. And so look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. Right? Paul, I think this is a very insightful and uh, compassionate verse. Right? He doesn't want Philemon just to obey out of compulsion. Right? If you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, you're probably going to do what he says to do. 
And that's actually what Paul doesn't want, just a compulsive obedience you know, with no heart change. Paul doesn't want to just coerce Philemon into modeling you know, this, this beautiful Christian life that's completely hollow and dead on the inside. Right? We all know what it's like to do something out of just a sense of duty. Not delight, but duty. Uh, you do something just because you have to. Right? You do something in order to satisfy someone. Uh, you have no desire to do it, but it needs to be done, and so you do it. And, and sometimes there can be something noble in that, but not when we're talking about Christian obedience. Paul doesn't want obedience from a sense of duty. That would be stapling roses onto a dead vine. Think about this. Um, for instance, my wife's birthday is coming up soon. Say I approached her and I had a beautiful bouquet of, of flowers that I had for her. Lots of flowers in the sermon today. And I gave her these flowers and she said, oh, these are beautiful. I love them. And I say, I had to. It's your birthday. So I figured I had to do it. Would that give her a deep sense of joy that her husband loved her? Probably not. She doesn't want me to say, it's my duty. She wants me to say, they are, and I love you, and I wanted you to have them. Right? That I have a delight in her that makes me want to do things to please her and to, to make her happy. Not just out of duty. And I think it's the same with our Christian lives as well. When we bring the, the sacrifice of obedience before the Lord, we ought not to come saying, here you go, God. It's my duty. Check. And then go about our lives. That's not pleasing to the Lord. He wants obedience that comes out of a heart that has a zeal for pleasing God, that delights to walk in obedience to him because we know his love for us. And his love for us has changed our hearts. It's given us now a love for him as well. We have only to think, perhaps, uh, to use a more biblical illustration of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually quite good at obeying. Right? They, were, they were very good at obeying commands. They, had, uh, they were good at doctrine. Right? They debated for hours the finer points of doctrine. They were passionate about missions. Jesus said they would cross land and sea to make a convert. It's pretty hardcore. Uh, we know they were meticulous about their obedience. We know they were meticulous about their giving and their tithing, even tithing on their spices. They were very meticulous. And what, Jesus, what did Jesus say about them? He said they are whitewashed tombs. He said they're beautiful on the outside. And they're completely dead on the inside. They could obey a command with the best of them, but, but that meant nothing. They were spiritually dead. They would have been the rose bush, a dead vine with hundreds of gorgeous roses stapled in every direction, but the vine itself was dead. And Paul knows that that is always a danger in any Christian context in which we're encouraging people to walk in obedience, in which he's encouraging someone else to take those steps of obeying God, he knows there's always the danger that if you do it the wrong way, people will obey and it will be completely meaningless. They will be like the Pharisees, where it's just a beautiful, spotless Christian life on the outside, but internally they're full of dead men's bones. And so, I think Paul is concerned that if he just gives Philemon a command, just a couple simple uh, checklists, that he might have actually done more harm than good. True gospel change does not come from 
external activities first. It comes from internal obedient, internal uh, heart change that comes from the gospel. And so Paul doesn't give a command. He says he's going to appeal out of love. And here's how his appeal is going to work. He's going to say to Philemon to think about what God has done for him in Christ. And to take that and apply that to this very difficult, very delicate situation in his life right now. Right? He's got this very uh, sort of complicated, messed up relationship with Onesimus. No doubt there's so much pain and brokenness in history in that master-slave relationship. That is very awkward. And so the appeal is, consider the mercy and the grace of God shown to you in Christ. That even when we were enemies, that when we were estranged from him, when we were daily insulting him, blaspheming and offending him in every way, that at that time God loved us, he found us, he pursued us, he sent his son to die for us in order to bring us back to him. Not only as his slaves, but as his sons and daughters. To call us his friends to seat us at his table. And the appeal is, Philemon, consider that. Consider that as you consider what you ought to do in receiving Onesimus back. N.T. Wright says something so insightful, I think, on this. He says, in thinking about this idea of why Paul is not more direct with Philemon, why doesn't he just tell Philemon very clearly what he wants him to do? If he wants him to set Onesimus free, why not just tell him that? And here's what N.T. Wright says. If Philemon had responded angrily to Paul's letter by giving Onesimus his freedom, but declaring he never wanted to set eyes on him again, that would have been defeat for Paul. Reconciliation is what mattered. See, if, if he only had the command, he could have obeyed the command in the completely wrong way. He said, fine, have your freedom and don't ever step foot on on this property again. And Paul would have said, that's more of a defeat than where we were a minute ago. See, here's, here's two ways we often read the book of Philemon a bit wrongly. Number one, we tend to read Philemon as though it's primarily about slavery and the ethical implications, which is understandable. That's kind of the main plot point, is the reconciliation of a master and a slave But it's not about slavery, it's about the gospel. It's about how the gospel comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. And then, of course, once we believe the gospel, once we are united to Christ, there are all sorts of ethical implications in our lives for uh, the way we think about slavery, but the way we think about everything else as well. Another commentator, F.F. Bruce, he said, Philemon doesn't take the issue of slavery head on. Rather, It teaches us how to order our relationships around the gospel. And in so doing, it creates the environment where slavery can do nothing but wither up and die. And so it doesn't take slavery head on, but it gets there. By saying, here is the beauty of the gospel that that appeals to our hearts. And when the gospel creates that environment of love and compassion in your heart, slavery just withers up and dies he said. And so this is the challenge of Philemon is to say, how do we go about that same sort of appeal by having Christ in our heart and considering our lives with respect to Christ? You see, I actually, 
I, I really like lists. I would have loved a list. I like lists. I like being able to, to get to the end of the day and look at my list and check the boxes and say, there, I have done my duty. I've done it. And no matter if anyone liked it or not, I did my duty and I'm going to bed. And I, I, I like the clarity that comes with that. Paul gives a much greater challenge. A much greater challenge as he adds Jesus into the mix. And, and he, he brings in the unexpected beauty of God's love and compassion for sinners. He says, now consider how you ought to live. Now, so the first uh, wrong approach is to think of, that it's primarily about slavery when it's not. Secondly, we tend to read this book as though we are Philemon. We're not. We're Onesimus. We are Onesimus. We are the rebellious slaves of our good master. We are uh, running away from the one who loved us and cared for us, and yet we have rebelled against him, blasphemed against him, used him and extorted him. And finally, we run away from him. And when we find him, we kill him. And yet, what happened? Our master sought us out, not in wrath, but in mercy. He sought us out at a very great cost to himself, sacrificing, in fact, his own son to make it possible. And then he brings us home, he brings us back to his household, not to reinstate us as slaves, but to call us his sons and daughters, and to seat us around the family table. Is that not what God has done for us in Christ? Are we not very similar to the position of Onesimus, this, this rebellious, ornery, runaway slave who is useless, and yet God found him? God found him. And so the book is a challenge to us not only to consider what would we do when we have those opportunities to stand in the place of Philemon. How then do we treat others when we know that we have been Onesimus as well? We have been that rebellious slave. We are the one who has deserved wrath and death and condemnation and received mercy instead. And so Paul doesn't give a command. To give a command would have been to short-circuit the whole idea of gospel logic, where it's the, the, the compassion and the mercy of God that changes the heart of the sinner and causes that sinner to then move out towards others with compassion and mercy and love and grace. That's the way obedience always works in the New Testament. It's never a, a simple response to laws or commands but it's a heart that has been changed by the transforming love of God in the gospel. Think about two other examples, just, just very quickly, uh, to illustrate this. Think about the way that Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul talks about marriage. It's one of the, the classic passages. I'm not going to read it, but he wants uh, to give marriage instruction to both men and women in Ephesians chapter 5. And what does he do? He doesn't select anything off the long shelf of marriage advice books that he could pick from with all the commands, do this, say this, act this way. He says, he goes straight to Christ, doesn't he? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's not a command, it's an appeal on the basis of the mercy of God in Christ. Or, number two, just going quickly, think about, uh, there's two places in 2 Corinthians where Paul is teaching about the topic of money and giving and generosity. Right? He's appealing to the Corinthians because he, uh, for them to be generous in giving to the churches. 
Now, if Paul wants to give a command about giving, there are a ton of them in the Old Testament that he could have drawn on. Right? He could have drawn on his authority to say, as Christians, you must give 10% of all of your income to God and to the church. But does he ever do that? No. What stands out and what's so memorable about those passages in 2 Corinthians is that he goes instead to the gospel. And he says, very specifically, I say this not as a command. He says that. He says instead, consider Christ, who was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He doesn't give them a command. He points them to Christ. And he applies, very specifically, Christ's mercy in humbling himself in the gospel. And he says, just think on that. Right? And we remember he says uh, you know, that God loves a cheerful giver. He d- does not desire you to give out of compulsion, right? but, but cheerfully. He doesn't want to just drop a list of commands about giving or about money. He says instead, just think about Christ. And then see how that affects the way your heart feels about generosity. It's really a, it's an insightful pastoral move because he's applying the gospel to, the, to our hearts as he does so. Right? And that's how you produce God-glorifying obedience. It's not just getting people more and more to obey the list of commands better. Right? That's not what we're up to here. It's about our hearts growing in their love for Christ. Now, the last point, and this is brief, I'll be quick. Uh, organic Christian growth. Uh, to be very practical and not just theoretical, here's, here's the way we often approach problems in our life, or at least difficult decisions. Um, oftentimes, right, when we face a moral dilemma in life, we recognize that we know what the right thing to do is. We just don't want to do it. Right? We know what the correct option to pick would be, but we don't want to. It's hard, it's difficult, our heart is totally inclining the other way. What do we do? Well, we typically say, well, there's two options, right? I could either, um, I, I could do the right thing even though I don't feel like it. That's sort of the rose stapling option. And, and in the short term, sometimes that's the good thing to do. Sometimes we need to. Uh, but in the long run, that does not build any character. So we could do that, or we think the only other option is just to go ahead and willfully disobey and do what I know is the wrong thing to do, right? We say, I don't have any other choice. I either do what is right even though I don't feel like it, or I just do what is wrong. I think Paul would say the third option is this. Instead, consider the gospel. Consider what God has done for you in Christ. Consider the love of God. Consider the mercy of Christ. Consider that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. In that moment, what we need to do is to bring our hearts back to the gospel, to say, I am a sinner. I recognize that. And yet God in his infinite mercy and his, his tender grace and his compassion, he's looked on me with love. And here I am, and I and myself, I deserve hell, condemnation, and worse. And yet God instead sent his own son to die for me so that I might have life. So that he might take the death that I deserved fully and completely in order that I might receive life. And what we need to do is allow that reality to work. To, to soften and to tender our own hearts. See, 
One pastor says, the way that we will stop sinning is not by being told over and over, stop sinning, but rather by seeing the majesty and the glory of God in the gospel. We tend to rely so much on our own willpower, right? on, on just the force of will, to say, if only I had enough willpower, I could do better. That almost never works. We don't just need willpower, we need the, the clearer, more compelling vision of Christ and his mercy for us in the gospel. Because that is what has the power to change the heart from the inside out, to have that vision of God and his holiness and his righteousness and all of his beauty and in his mercy and his compassion towards lost, struggling sinners. To go simply to the cross. Right? We see it all right there. We see God's holiness and his, his righteous judgment on sin and we see his mercy and his love poured out both together right there at the cross and what God has done for us in Christ. We see the depth of our sin, that it required nothing less than Jesus giving his own life. And we see the grace of God who loved us enough to give his son to save us. See, that's where Paul is going when he says, although I could be bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... I prefer to appeal on the basis of the mercy of Christ to consider all things of your life, all dilemmas, to bring them all under that umbrella of the mercy of Christ and see how that changes you first from the inside. And to water the soil of your heart, to fertilize it with the gospel, to give it life, to give it the nutrients that it needs in order that it might produce fruit naturally, not under compulsion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the, the glory and the beauty of the rugged cross in which we see the depth of our sin and we see the, the glory of your mercy. And Lord, we desire to understand and to know and to love your mercy more and more. We desire for that to become the controlling feature which guides and directs us, which gives us clarity of insight, Lord, into our lives, into uh, our, our place in this world. We desire to walk with Christ. We desire to grow in our, our joy of the union with Christ. So Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would press your word onto our hearts. Cause it to take root, to grow and to flourish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.